Hello and welcome to 5 at 8. I'm Mark Overman, and joining me today is Linda Carlisle. It's Monday, June 19th, 2023, and we have some great stories for you. In this episode, we'll talk about the continued decline of the Turkish lira, Australia's need to reach net-zero greenhouse gas emissions, Russia's alleged blocking of humanitarian aid deliveries to eastern Ukraine, Italy's decision to prevent Chinese company Sinecom from acquiring control of Pirelli, and U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's visit to Beijing for talks with Chinese officials. Story number one. Experts predict that the Turkish lira will continue to fall against the U.S. dollar, reaching its true value after a period of delayed inflation. Al Jazeera reports that the devaluation of the lira began in 2013 and accelerated in 2021, with suppressed inflation prior to the elections contributing to its continued decline. Government and industry experts have made budgetary calculations based on expectations that the lira will continue to fall. And as reported by Al Jazeera, the only way to stop the extreme worthlessness of the lira is to increase interest rates. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's policies of lowering interest rates to promote economic growth have resulted in increasing inflation, and experts say the next step should be to increase Turks' purchasing power by ensuring stability through rational economic decisions. You know, Linda, this whole situation with the Turkish lira is really concerning. Erdogan's unorthodox approach of lowering interest rates to promote economic growth and increase production doesn't seem to be working out too well. Inflation is at a 24-year high, and the lira keeps devaluing against the U.S. dollar. Yes, Mark. It's definitely a complex issue. It's clear that Turkey has faced a series of political and economic challenges over the last decade, including the Gezi events, the coup attempt, and the pandemic. These events have contributed to the lira's decline, but it's also important to consider the government's role in this situation. Absolutely, Linda. I mean, I respect Erdogan's desire to create an independent economy and break free from global influences, but it seems like his policies are backfiring. Instead of fostering growth, they're causing inflation and making it difficult for businesses to access loans. It's just a mess. Indeed, Mark. And it's worth noting that the recent appointment of Mehmet Simsek as Treasury and Finance Minister, as well as Hafize Gay Erkin as the head of the central bank, might signal a shift in Turkey's economic policies. Both of them are known for their more orthodox and rational approaches, which could potentially help stabilize the situation. Right. But it's not like things will change overnight. Experts are predicting that it'll take at least 18 months to see any significant improvements in the Turkish economy. In the meantime, the Turkish people are facing high inflation and a rising cost of living. It's just, it's a tough situation all around. It certainly is, Mark. And while we can hope that the new appointments and potential policy changes will have a positive impact, it's also important to remember that there are no guarantees in economics. It's a delicate balancing act, and only time will tell if Turkey can successfully navigate these challenges and emerge stronger on the other side. Story number two. According to new scientific analysis commissioned by WWF Australia, Australia needs to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2038 to do its fair share in containing global heating. The Guardian reports that Australia's 2035 target would need to see a cut of 90% on 2005 levels by 2035 to keep global heating of 1,5C within reach. The Albanese government has already updated the country's target to a 43% cut on 2005 levels by 2030. However, the Guardian states that the improved target would need to have been 
at least 67% to have been in line with one. 5C. This new analysis on Australia's emissions reduction is pretty eye-opening, huh? I mean, reaching net zero by 2038 is a heck of a lot sooner than the government's current target of 2050. It's clear that we need to step up our game if we want to do our fair share in the global effort to limit temperature increases. Yes, it's certainly a call for greater action. However, it's important to remember that the concept of a fair share is quite subjective and can vary greatly between countries. Factors like economic development, population size, and historical emissions all play a role in determining what is considered fair and equitable. Absolutely. But we can't deny that some countries, like Australia, have a larger responsibility to cut emissions due to their high per capita emissions and historical contributions to the problem. I think it's crucial for developed countries to lead by example and set ambitious targets to inspire others to follow suit. I agree, Mark. But we also need to be mindful of the challenges that come with setting and achieving these ambitious targets. Transitioning to a low-carbon economy can be a complex process, and it's essential to strike a balance between reducing emissions and ensuring economic stability and growth. True, true. But you know, I believe that investing in clean energy and sustainable technologies can actually drive economic growth and create new job opportunities. It's not an either-or situation. We can protect the environment and promote economic development at the same time. That's a valid point, Mark. It's just important to remember that each country faces its own unique set of circumstances and challenges when it comes to reducing emissions. While it's crucial to push for ambitious climate goals, we must also be realistic and consider the various factors that can affect a country's ability to achieve those targets. Story number three. According to The Guardian, the UN has accused Russia of blocking humanitarian aid deliveries to Russian-occupied areas in eastern Ukraine, affected by the recent Kakovka Dam rupture. Exclusive drone photos and information obtained by the Associated Press Newswire suggest that Russia had the means, motive, and opportunity to bring down the dam. The death toll from flooding caused by the destruction of the dam has risen to 16 in Ukraine, with 31 still missing and 29 in territories controlled by Russia. Ukraine has recaptured the village of Piatikatki in the southern Zaporizhia region, and the EU is speeding up arms deliveries to Ukraine to support the counteroffensive against Russian forces. Man, this situation in Ukraine is just heartbreaking. The UN is accusing Russia of blocking humanitarian aid deliveries to areas affected by the Kakovka Dam rupture. It's unbelievable that even in times of conflict, some parties can't put aside their differences to help those in need. Yes, Mark. It is indeed disheartening. The obstruction of humanitarian aid in conflict situations has been a recurring issue throughout history. It's crucial for the international community to address this problem and ensure that innocent civilians don't suffer unnecessarily. Absolutely, Linda. I mean, it's not just about the immediate impact on these people, but also the long-term consequences. When aid is blocked, it can lead to food shortages, lack of medical supplies, and even the spread of diseases. It's just a terrible domino effect. You're right, Mark. And it's important to remember that international humanitarian law exists to protect civilians in these situations. All parties involved in a conflict have a responsibility to ensure the well-being of civilians and not impede aid efforts. Yeah, and it's just 
uh, frustrating to see that these laws aren't always respected. I mean, we've seen similar instances in the past, like during the Syrian civil war, where aid convoys were blocked or even attacked. It's just, I don't know, it's hard to wrap my head around it. It is indeed difficult to comprehend, Mark. But it's important for us to continue raising awareness about these issues and advocating for the protection of civilians in conflict situations. The international community must work together to hold those who violate humanitarian law accountable and ensure that aid reaches those who need it most. Story number four. In a report from the BBC, Italy has prevented Chinese state-owned company Sinochem from acquiring control of Pirelli, a tire manufacturing giant. This decision is in line with Italy's efforts to safeguard Pirelli's autonomy. Sinochem holds a 37% stake in the Milan-based company and is its largest shareholder. The move comes amid heightened tensions between the West and Beijing, with the U.S. Secretary of State currently visiting China. Man, this move by the Italian government to block a Chinese state-owned company from taking control of Pirelli is a clear example of economic nationalism. I get that they're trying to protect their domestic industries and key companies, but I think it could have some serious consequences for globalization and international cooperation. Well, Mark, I understand your concerns, but we should also consider the motivations behind such decisions. In this case, the Italian government is acting to protect Pirelli's independence, which is an important aspect of their national identity and economic stability. It's not necessarily a move against globalization, but rather a response to current geopolitical tensions. Yeah, I see where you're coming from, Linda, but we can't ignore the fact that these kinds of interventions can lead to a tit-for-tat situation, where countries start to retaliate and restrict trade and investment. That could really undermine the global economy and hurt businesses and consumers in the long run. That's a valid point, Mark. But we must also acknowledge that governments have a responsibility to protect their strategic industries and ensure their long-term viability. In this case, Pirelli is a key player in the global tire market, and maintaining its independence could be crucial for Italy's economic future. It's a delicate balance between promoting globalization and safeguarding national interests. True, true, but I can't help but think that this trend of economic nationalism could be a slippery slope. If more and more countries start putting up barriers and taking protectionist measures, we might end up with a fragmented global economy that's less efficient and less competitive. I just hope that this is a temporary response to current tensions and not a sign of a larger shift away from globalization. I understand your concerns, Mark, and it's important to keep an eye on these developments. However, we should also recognize that each case is unique and governments must carefully weigh the potential risks and benefits of their actions. Ultimately, it's about finding the right balance between national interests and global cooperation. Story number five. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken has arrived in Beijing for talks with Chinese officials, marking the highest level visit by a U.S. official since 2018. The Guardian reports that the two-day talks are expected to cover issues such as the Taiwan Strait, technology, human rights, and the war in Ukraine. Blinken's aides have indicated that he is seeking to build lines of communication rather than secure any practical breakthrough agreements. The U.S. believes that the talks will be worthwhile if they simply reduce the risk of misunderstanding and start to reopen atrophied channels of communication. There's no denying that Blinken's visit to China is a crucial step in re-establishing communication between the two countries. I mean, it's been years since we've had this level of diplomatic engagement— it's high time we clear the air and find some common ground. 
I agree, Mark. Open communication is essential to prevent misunderstandings and miscalculations, especially on sensitive issues like Taiwan and Ukraine. It's vital to have these lines of communication to maintain stability and reduce tensions. Absolutely, Linda. And you know, it's not just about the U.S. and China. We've got to get our European allies on board, too. We need a united front when dealing with China's growing influence. That's true. It's important to strike a balance between competition and cooperation. We can't ignore areas where we can work together, like climate change, health, and trade. At the same time, we need to protect our national security interests and those of our allies. Yeah, it's a delicate dance for sure. But, uh, you know what they say. Intense competition requires intense diplomacy. We can't afford to let things spiral out of control. Well said, Mark. And let's not forget the role of diplomacy in addressing misunderstandings. History has shown us that without open lines of communication, situations can escalate quickly, leading to unintended consequences. You're spot on, Linda. Let's hope that Blinken's visit paves the way for more high-level meetings and a more stable relationship between the U.S. and China. It's in everyone's best interest to keep the lines of communication open and work together where we can. That's it for this morning. Have a great day and see you all tomorrow. Five at Eight is researched, written, and performed by artificial intelligence. For more information, visit botcaster.ai.